This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good morning, you're listening to Pressing Matters, the show where we go beyond the headlines and explore issues driving the press. I'm Philip C. Today's show, I speak to Selena Cheng, Hong Kong-based reporter at The Wall Street Journal, as she shares with us how did Chinese automaker BYD overtake Tesla to become the world's largest EV maker? And she helps us understand how its CEO, Wang Chuanfu, built this business from scratch. Good morning, Selena. You know, many Malaysians are quite familiar with the BYD brand, but what does it stand for? Is it really build your dreams? Um, that's a meaning that the go- the company has given its acronym anachronistically, I'd say, in retrospective, because um, its company founder in previous interviews said that he actually came out with the acronym uh, without any meaning. He selected the name BYD because B is the second letter of the alphabets. And so if the company were to join any conferences, expos or events, then it will be sure to come up at the top of the list. So, um, yeah, they kind of invented the meaning build your dreams uh, a bit later. And um, actually, at some point, they also joked that uh, BYD could have stood for bring your dollars. So, um, so yeah, so that's how this name came about. And now I'm sure in Malaysia, you would see that um, build your dreams would be printed at the uh, back of the Atto 3 cards. That's right. I mean, I mean, I think for us, it's interesting how he was just so practical about the name, right? There was no kind of emotion behind this. And I presume, you know, there was really never any intention in the beginning for the CEO uh, of BYD really to ever even enter into the car business, correct? Um, I think when he first started a company, he was making cell phone batteries. But uh, my sense is that from quite early on, he was already um, having bigger ambitions than producing small batteries at the time. And that's why very shortly after the company listed in Hong Kong and was able to raise money, um, they bought a defunct car factory in China the year after. And the stock market at the time didn't didn't take that well because um, the stock price actually plunged. Um, people just didn't weren't optimistic that BYD would be making cars one day. But um, I think even in the mid-90s, there were already some electric and hybrid cars around. Um, they were just still kind of a pioneer product, a little bit experimental. So there were no actual EV makers like uh, we have today. And um, so, um, yeah, my sense is that Wang Trumpho had the feeling that it could work and he just had to figure out how. So tell us a bit about the CEO Wang Chuan Fu, right? I mean, was he always an entrepreneur from start? In the 90s, he was uh, working for the Chinese government. And uh, like a lot of other people, because at that time, China had a huge state apparatus. Most people worked for state-owned companies. And um, at one point, the government just realized that this wasn't sustainable. They needed a stronger private sector. So they encouraged a lot of people to come out and join commerce, businesses, uh, start their own companies. And um, that's what they call go down to the sea. <laughs> and then Wang Chenfu was one of these people and he had an engineering background. Uh, he was actually more of a physical chemist as well as an engineer. And he was doing battery research for the state at the time. So he came out in the 90s to start his own company and try to do his own thing. So yeah, so he didn't have a business background. And even nowadays, people would 
um, see him more as an engineering guy, a technologist, than someone who is more focused on profits and making money and all that, um, even though he does drive most of the company's business strategies. Fascinating in the sense that actually, you know, you talk about his persona being more the technical person, the geek, I guess, of the, yeah, of the business, yeah. right? Not the one that does the, the dollars and cents side. He relies on other people to drive the sales, the, the figures, the marketing part. That's that's his psychic, isn't it, Stella Lee? Um, so yeah, Stella Lee helped him a lot in expanding the company abroad, even in the 90s. Um, she was really good at um, closing deals because um, a few years after she went to Europe and the U.S. to set up UID's overseas branches, she was able to get the huge clients Motorola and Nokia. And um, she basically learned how to speak English while she was doing business abroad. She didn't speak very well at the beginning. And uh, that's a kind of a different face to the company. Um, but uh, from what we know today, uh, Wan still keeps a very close eye on what every market sales are and what they're doing, what the bottom lines are. Yeah, I would say that um, he hasn't, you know, completely delegated all the business side of affairs to Stella Lee, but they do take quite a different role. So remind me a bit about the original, you know, entrepreneurial journey of Wang Chuan Fu. You say he he was a chemist, you know, focused um, on batteries. So he did build his business first in the business of batteries, right? It was not an easy journey, isn't it, in the beginning side? Um, yeah. So at that time, the cell phone battery industry was dominated by Japanese makers like Sony and Sanyo. And he understood quite well what batteries uh, were made of, how they were produced. Um, but ultimately, I think when it came to the design, he actually... Um, borrowed a lot from these Japanese makers. So there were criticisms that BYD was just copying what the Japanese manufacturers were doing. But one thing that Wantrofu was very good at was understanding patents. So all these battery cells had patents registered, and if you actually infringe them, then of course um, your company would get sued. But because he understood patents so well, he could um, sort of break apart a product and um, take just the parts uh, enough for producing a product without it ever infringing on the patent. So um, that's why he was able to sort of borrow the design or some of the uh, thinking behind these products, change a little bit, reinvent it, and then do it his own way with much lower cost. And um, that strategy convinced um, his biggest clients, including Motorola. His ability to really delve deep into the way things are patented and just make things work around the whole licensing patent framework is, I think, what stood him the test of time. That also was replicated when he decided to enter the auto industry also, isn't it? Because there were so many uh, talks about actually his cars at the original onset being replicas of the Japanese models. Yeah, yeah. So some of the earlier models' designs really look similar to Toyota cars. And even even these days, I still hear people in the industry saying, like, so-and-so part of this car is similar to a certain Japanese brand. But the company isn't shy about what it was doing. It admitted that, Wang Chuanfu admitted that he had no idea about making cars because he was a batteries person. And so to start, he really had to... Um, 
learn from the finished products out on the market. So he said himself that he bought multiple of these cars made by foreign brands. Um, and one of the brands that he learned most from was Toyota because he thought Toyota was the biggest car maker in the world. And that's why he wanted to learn from the best. So um, he didn't outright say, oh, I copy uh, Toyota Corolla. and But I think in a way he sort of implied that and um, admitted also, you know, the shortcomings that the company had in the early days and how they found their um, path over the years. And remind me again, how did he decide to jump from battery manufacturing to car assembly and manufacturing? Well, what was that transition, you know? What was the thought? Yeah, we don't know um, exactly what his thought process was, but we know from the context that battery-powered cars, uh, plug-in hybrids and EVs, sort of hybrid cars and EVs already sort of existed. Then it was not mass-produced and not um, commercialized too much. So it was still a very experimental product. And um, so to somebody who understood batteries, you would understand that it's a question of scaling up these batteries, make them bigger and more powerful and make it work with a car drivetrain. And so I guess that's how he uh, moved from phone batteries to car batteries, because Naturally, if uh, you move from making a tiny battery to a bigger one, then um, it's a more complex product. There's more value added to it, and the potential profit is also much bigger. And that's also similar to how now we talk about different types of batteries as well, like solid-state battery or sodium-ion batteries. And uh, people know that these batteries can uh, find application in small appliances, um, maybe not in a way that's very scaled out, but uh, people know that it sort of can happen and they just have to find out how to massively commercialize them. And next from cars is, for example, things like ships and airplanes. And people do talk about you know, how one day we could have electrified airplanes or electrified boats. And um, it's very, I imagine it was a very similar type of uh, thinking 20, 30 years ago when it was about cars. We're heading into some messages and when we come back, we continue our discussion with Selena Cheng, Hong Kong-based reporter at the Wall Street Journal on how BYD beat Tesla in the EV game. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thanks for staying tuned to Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Today on the show, Selena Cheng from the Wall Street Journal about BYD's remarkable growth in the EV space. Selena, everyone is talking about BYD overtaking Tesla. What do you think was the edge that BYD had over other EV manufacturers? Was it, you know, Wang Chuan Fu's really deep understanding on battery technology and its ability to integrate it very well with car assembly? Yeah. In car manufacturing, uh, traditionally, um, a lot of the biggest car makers, they would also own their own suppliers. Um which means they, through these subsidiaries, make their own uh, components and parts. It was like that for Toyota or any Korean car maker, American ones. Um, they each have their own sort of family of companies and this whole ecosystem um, supplying the same um, uh, end product manufacturer. So uh, to BYD, it's similar in that sense. And uh, Wang Chuanfu very early on, he because the reason for him to make cars was to make electric ones. So right from the get-go, he already decided that he has to have ownership over 
this biggest and most expensive product, um, this biggest and most expensive component of the whole car, which is the battery. And he focused a lot on the kind of battery technology and the kind of electric drivetrain technology that his cars would be using. And he constantly emphasized um, within the company the need to um, have control over the core technology of the vehicle. So um, by having control over what's the crux of this product, the company is able to control costs much, much better. It doesn't have to rely as much on outside suppliers um, and when there are you know unexpected circumstances or if you know costs go up then you would be pulled around by these other um, third parties but because Wang Chenfu has always insisted that he his company has to have uh, complete control over the battery and the drivetrain um, then that gives them much better visibility and control over right. what they could do yeah Interesting. So he really was very far-sighted and was able to look at the supply chain and make sure that it was very much tightly integrated and within his control, right? That was really one of the biggest uh, differentiation differentiators he had from other car manufacturers there. Um. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would think so. Um, it's also, a, I would say it's also partly contributed to by the circumstances he was in because um, the time when he was just starting to study um, batteries for cars, there actually weren't a lot of them around. There weren't already, you know, prolific suppliers that he could just source from. So he had to figure a lot of that out um, on its own. So, you know, when you are one of the first in the industry to do something, um, you have to chart out everything. And in the end, you end up owning these um, products that you have to develop first before you get to... um, the assembly. Is that what uh, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway saw in him? This ability to think ahead, right? Is that why they were so early in the game in investing in BYD all over from America coming to see him and saying, well, this is really a great investment proposition? Yeah. Um, I guess we see that they're right from the stock prices now, right? Um, soon after Warren Buffett began investing um, in BYD, its stock prices um, quadrupled and over time they're making I, I don't even know how many times more in profit just from all these um, shareholding and so yeah I think um, Warren Buffett through David Sokol and Charlie Munger they really saw the potential in this company um, to the point where they wanted to buy 10% of this company and it wasn't just that because BYG's founder also said that initially Warren Buffett wanted to buy more shares than 10%. And he wouldn't allow it because it's his company and they came down to this um, final number. So, um, yeah, I guess uh, that's something that tells a lot about how Warren Buffett thought about this company. And uh, and I, I guess it's also buying into the person, the personality, right? Because when you talk about Chan Fu, he sounds like someone who is very detail-oriented, who is so meticulous, really into the technology. What's his um, leadership style? Do you know? Do you get a sense when you talk to BYD employees or partners, right? What is the kind of culture and leadership style he brings to the organization? Like other Chinese businessmen and entrepreneur and the general Chinese work culture, um, he is super, super hardworking. Um, he's always um, the first to start the day with all the meetings and the last to finish. And he has very close um, oversight over every branch of the company. He 
um, looks after design, manufacturing, operations, um, sales, everything. And people in each market have to report to him every week to tell them about the progress um, that they're doing. And uh, he's also very frugal. So he has grand plans. He has grand ambitions, as we know, because he started working on all these some 20 years ago. But he's also very practical. Um, he knows how to calculate and weigh between um, cost and benefit. And uh, he is not a very flashy character. So he would not um, often give media interviews that say explosive things that would move the stock prices. He wouldn't do that. And instead, he sort of just you know, um, stick to his gun and work on these things and speak when it's necessary mm. or when he thinks it's appropriate. I think in the company, he's known to be quite frugal. So employees, when they go on business trips with him, with him, he, they would sometimes feel a little bit stressed because they'll for sure get asked on costs and so on for okay. hotel and flights. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a very low-key guy who actually, he's the exact opposite of perhaps Jack Ma, who is not so you know, high profile. I wonder out loud then throughout his whole, very, his illustrious career, there must have been many challenges he's encountered, right? What were his most challenging times in? Right. Um. So one moment in the company's history that um, Waterloo said was very challenging was in around 2019. That year, the company actually shrank in its re- its revenue shrank compared to, um, compared to the previous year, as in the growth um, was slower than the previous year. And Wanchafu repeatedly mentioned that this was the toughest year that he's encountered um, throughout his career. And the reason for that was in 2019, there were already uh, quite a few EV startups in China. Um, People were already doing it. um, And there were uh, companies that became more or less prolific. And uh, around that time, Tesla came into China and um, started building its first factory in China in Shanghai. And um, what this means was that a lot of Chinese consumers became very interested in EVs thanks to Tesla. It was a reliable car maker even that uh, by then. And uh, it was a foreign Western brand. Um, it was very hip and upcoming. Uh, people really believed in this brand. And as soon as it started delivering these cars made in Shanghai, he was able to um, price it down a lot by what it used to be. Uh, when it was made in the U.S. and imported to China, because China does have a pretty um, hefty uh, import tariff for cars. So yeah, so all of a sudden, Tesla was getting a lot of the portion of the pie, and other EV makers um, became a lot more stressed out um, due to that. If they lose more market share and more customers to Tesla, they might very soon get uh, driven out and squeezed out and there's nothing left for them. And so at that time, BYD was already making EVs and plug-in hybrids, but its cars just weren't as great as Tesla's. And yeah, and so that's why they were finding themselves in a very tough position because at the same time, they had these other EV startups in China making quite good products and there was Tesla. And if they still couldn't you know, break through and and make um, war in sales, then they could be in serious trouble and run out run out of money by then. So um, so yeah, so that's the time when the company was um, in in facing some challenges. And uh, it was the year after in 2020 that BYD came up with their own battery. It's an iron ion battery called the LFP uh, battery. It's named 
um, the company named it the blade battery because of the way the battery cells were arranged. And um, yeah, and this blade battery was a little bit cheaper, less dense in the energy, but it was good for its cars and quite reliable and safe. So it was uh, really thanks to this battery that BYD was able to you know, break through the bottleneck and make a lot yeah. more in sales by selling these affordable EVs in China. So he really upped his game by just doubling down on innovation, isn't it? By really just improving the battery technology. He didn't. He did go into a bit of a price war, but it was mostly through innovation, isn't it, that he was able to prevail over Tesla. Would it be fair to say that? Uh, yeah, I, I think it would be fair to say that because, like I said, the market already had some good options. And if you were just making it cheaper, you could, you know, that could get you somewhere that would move the needle a little bit, but maybe not enough for you to survive in the long term. So you talk a bit about, you know, 20 years ago, he had grand plans and grand ambitions. Mm. I presume he has grand plans and grand ambitions for the next 20 years, right? Is this that he's not uh, or do we get do we have a sense of what you know the future holds for BYD? Yeah, um the company says it strives to become the world's top car manufacturer uh by 2025. That means it would have to make more cars than Volkswagen and Toyota. It's still a long way from that because I think Volkswagen and Toyota would be making in the 20 or 30 million cars a year. And uh, so uh, it rests to see if we could do that. It's a big jump from 3 million to uh, 10 times more in two years. So um, we'll see. We'll see what happens. That was Selena Cheng from the Wall Street Journal. This has been Pressing Matters on the Morning Run. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.